Welcome to Centering Centers, a pod network podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. The pod network is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members' professional learning through meaningful and sustained interaction. This podcast is an initiative led by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of POD. To get more involved in the DRI committee or this podcast, just send us an email at dri at podnetwork.org. Hi, I'm Derek Breff, Visiting Associate Director at the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Mississippi and former Executive Director of the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University. While I was at Vanderbilt, I hosted the Educational Technology Podcast, Leading Lines, for six years. And when that podcast ended, I reached out to Laura and Lindsay at Centering Centers to see if they might be interested in having me as a guest host. They were delighted to say yes, and today I'm hosting the second of two episodes here on Centering Centers. In this episode, I talk with Jessica Riddell, Professor of Early Modern Literature and the Stephen A. Jaroslawski Chair of Undergraduate Teaching Excellence at Bishop's University in Quebec, Canada. I went to a session that Jessica co-presented at the Virtual Pod Network Conference last year, where I heard about her work with the Maple League of Universities. I learned that the Maple League was not, in fact, a group of Canadian superheroes, but it is a consortium of four small universities in Canada that have banded together to support quality undergraduate education. In our conversation here on the podcast... Jessica shares her journey into the field of educational development, how collaboration across institutions can support the missions of those institutions, what she's learning in her new position on the board of directors of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, the AAC and U, and also how she manages to get so much stuff done in her week. Thank you, Jessica, for being on Centering Centers. I'm excited to talk with you today. I am so excited to be here. I'm a big fan of yours from the Twitter sphere, and I'm just excited to see you in real time. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to be kind of guest hosting here on Centering Centers and uh, chatting with my teaching center colleagues um, in educational development. But I want to ask you first, uh, one of my favorite questions, can you tell us about a time when you realized you wanted to be an educator? Yes. <laughs> That's a tough question. That I maybe I'll tell you a time about when I I transformed from a student to a learner. Okay. And I I was toggling back and forth in my undergraduate journey and it was a messy and circuitous journey where I was a student, so I was a number, I was on an Excel document, I was going to McGill, I was countable, I was able to be dismembered. You could say there's 26.7 students in the class without anybody losing a limb. I was massified and scaled and I understood that kind of education. And moreover, I understood how to game this system as a student. So I understood where value circulated, where the edges of structures and systems were so that I could put in different kinds of effort to get rewarded based on those systems. And that didn't work for me. I was not living in wholeness. I was Mm -hmm. not living in an undivided space. I was short-circuiting my own creativity. I didn't have a language for it. I couldn't frame it only in retrospect. Can I 
sort of metabolize that discomfort. But I remember dropping out and coming back to university after taking some time off, sort of paying off my financial and existential debts and returning back to the classroom. And on the first day of my fresh start, I met Dr. Janet Hale, who had trained with the RSC in England, was a Shakespearean, and she walked RSC into this classroom, Royal, Royal Shakespeare. Shakespeare Company. Yes. She trained with Dame Judy Dench. She looks like her. And she came into the classroom and she was trailing scarves and she had books in her arms and she plunked everything down and she said, right, who's my Desdemona? And I think she pointed it to me, or maybe I just levitated out of my chair (laughs) and ended up in the front of the classroom lying on dusty linoleum and had her give this speech, put out the light. She was Othello and she was murdering me. And I do feel, and I love a good metaphor, but I do feel like the student died and the learner got up and stood up and was was born into a moment where it just it wasn't just Shakespeare. I had read Shakespeare before I'd seen Shakespeare, but it was Shakespeare in the classroom, in conversation with a professor who loved her craft. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that that moment of the student died, the learner was was born. And now I still toggled back between student and learner, but learner is is embodied. It's indivisible. A learner doesn't show up on an Excel document. A mm. learner is a full human that the, the world, the classroom cannot be complete without learners completing it. And so that for me was a magical moment of convergence mm. that totally transformed myself, but it also transformed my understanding of my place in the world. And it's there where I thought, you know what, there's something magical here I want to chase. Wow. And so that led you, I assume over time, <laughs> to be a scholar of Shakespeare and a teacher of Shakespeare and, and then a teacher of teachers. Um, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I look back on it, it, it looks less messy than it felt. Mm. So it felt really messy and circuitous as I was crossing, I really love threshold concepts. I really Mm. love those transformative journeys that we undertake where we can't see the other side and that we have to sit in the difficulty of not being able to grasp the bounded concept and that we only recognize we've crossed that threshold in retrospect and often in conversation with our mentors who can see that before we can. Yeah. Yeah. So it it sounds like this lovely journey, but it felt messy and hard and decentering at the time. So I all I know is I wanted to recreate that feeling I had in the classroom with Shakespeare, hmm. with my fellow students as learners, as we code co-constructed something, we brought something to life that didn't exist before and also wouldn't exist after. So this moment of ephemerality was really was really powerful. And so I ended up going to grad school. I didn't know that you could get paid to go to grad school until my my professor was like, you know, you could you could do that. That that is available. First generation grad student. So I was like, wow, okay. 
that sounds fun. And I had really planned to go to law school. I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to do um, international human rights and lobby for women and children in developing nations. Like that was where I was going. Uh, and I thought, oh, I'll just take a quick detour and do a, like a one-year master's. And then I just kind of stayed stayed there because it felt good. It also felt hard and alienating. And the more I went through grad school, the more that joy and delight and sort of immediacy of lived experience in co-design got stamped out of me. Uh, and so <laughs> that's kind of a sad story. It's not a yeah, triumphal narrative. Sure. But I entered a profession where, you know, Shakespeare is one of the funniest authors. He's full of dirty jokes and foddiness and hilarity. And there's always a moment where you find yourself laughing out loud, but there are no jokes in Shakespeare scholarship. There's no uh, yeah. delight. You take you take that out because you have to be very, very serious and very, yeah. very rigorous. And so... I felt the pain of Parker Palmer's dismemberment, mm. right? That I had dismembered myself, that I had forgotten what called me to this in the first place. And so my first job at Concordia University in Montreal, I started to remember. And it really is a kind of dismemberment and then remembering. And I found that in the classroom. I mm. found that joy in the classroom where in my scholarship and my research, I, I felt imposterous and alienated. And here I found that I was wired for these conversations. Mm. And so I accidentally got a tenure track job at this little tiny liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, rural Quebec, Canada. And I went and thought, I'll be there for a couple of years. I'll buy some rubber boots and I'll get a dog and I'll live in a farmhouse and I'll try that. Sure. And so I, I did. And what I found was in this tiny little incubator of primarily undergraduate, you know, wonderful uh, small class sizes, I found the benevolent neglect necessary to build hmm. what I now call the prototypes of hope circuits. I didn't have that language, but these weird, wonderful, beautiful little things that I got to design and co-design and then see how they lived in, hmm. in real life and study them and think about them. And so once I started to do that, that's where I thought, I've got to share this with other humans. I I know my colleagues are tired and depleted and exhausted and dismembered. And I know when they come alive, when, they're, when their faces, you can see it, their faces yeah. come alive, their voices come alive. And I wanted to do that work with them. And so that's hmm. that was my very, very messy journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now... You have you have several titles at bishops, but I want to ask you, what does it mean to be the Jaroslawski Chair of Undergraduate Teaching Excellence at Bishops University? I love this question because it's about generosity and generativity. Stephen Jaroslawski was a refugee in the late 1930s from Germany. With the rise of fascism, he fled and was a refugee in Europe, and then he found his way to America. And when he was in the United States, he enlisted and went and fought in the Second World War. Um, and yes, oh, he was amazing. And then when he came back, he was part of a GI Bill to go to university. And so he went to Harvard um, and he got a, a degree. And then he went and, and did this kind of journey where um, 
he found profound meaning in mentorship and in education as a way of exercising fiduciary duty and civil engagement. He moved to Montreal in the 1950s. He started an investment banking firm. He created this billion-dollar enterprise and then created a foundation. And his idea was that the future, our our legacy is in education, an education where we can Mm. move from – you know, something simple to something complex to understand the interworkings. And this man is a polymath. He can Hmm. quote poetry, classical philosophy. He is adept at just the most beautiful um, sort of East Asian art. This man is so attentive to how important the arts are to a flourishing Hmm. civil society. So he decided that he was going to start endowing chairships. So I think he's got about 37 endowed chairships in Canada and the U.S. Okay. And they're about particular topics, all dedicated to making the world a better place, more inclusive, more just, more transparent, with a particular focus on how do we engage in the values of a civil society. So um, everything from the security of, of water and oceans to combating child poverty, this man is Absolutely. His impact on higher education in Canada cannot be understated. Mm. And so uh, he decided, we made a case at Bishops that although there were really interesting in-depth disciplinary chairs that went deep into a particular research field, there wasn't anything about undergraduate education, which is broad and deep, right? It has a kind of immensity that people don't pay attention to as much. And so we made a successful case to endow this chair. And my mandate is to lead conversations about quality undergraduate education in Canada and internationally. It Mm. is the greatest job ever. (laughs) (laughs) Because I get to have conversations with you. And my patron is the most powerful model of generative, so legacy building, Mm. generosity. And he is absolutely committed to the independence and the autonomy of the chair, recognizing that institutions themselves sometimes get in their own way. So he's got this real commitment to the independence of this chair, the research focus, but also research in action and in conversation. And I just, I couldn't be more proud of Mm. the the name of this chairship. So what does that mean on a daily or weekly basis? What are you involved with? And and what, if any, connection do you have to the Teaching and Learning Center at Bishops? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's one that I, I like to think about microcosm to macrocosm. So I like to think about um, sort of you drop a, a stone in the water and then you see these sort of larger concentric rings. And so I start and I'm embedded in a classroom. So I still teach two classes, sometimes four, depending on what I've been cooking up and piloting and playing with. But I start from the classroom. So I, as a Shakespearean, um, I actually just this morning taught my Shakespeare's Guide to Hope, Life, and Learning course, where we take these, these 
beautiful plays and we think about how they're strange and unfamiliar, so they decenter us, but they're also inviting us to think about our own space. Where do we build meaning together in a classroom, but also in John Dewey's formulation of a creative democracy? How are we all brought upon to create something that unfolds together, that is not monolithic or separate from us, but is absolutely something we do, as you say, anchored in practice daily. So I start in the classroom and I teach those kinds of classes. Um, I also get to to create new classes. So just with one of my uh, co-investigators, we're teaching a new course this semester called um, Metaphor and Mentorship in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So each week we take a different Marvel superhero and we think about what metaphors Mm. these films provide for us to think about generativity in relationship to mentorship, agency, and communion. And so it's a research question. My, my classes mm-hmm. are research yeah. questions. I go in with curiosity and then with students co-design and partner and collaborate and build an emerging framework from the kinds of questions that we start with. And so that that is in the classroom, those values and how value circulates informs all the other things that I do. So I work um, with especially junior and emerging faculty on helping them work through their teaching dossiers, their teaching philosophies, their origin stories. I try to help them unlock their superhero powers. I give them small grants so they can go and try all sorts of weird, wonderful mm. little things in their own classrooms or in their own educational leadership. And then I, if you think about expanding it more, I am the executive director of the Maple League, four small liberal arts, primarily undergraduate universities located in Eastern Canada, all really precarious because Canadian universities are all publicly funded. Yeah. So and and public- most of them are very large, right? We do. We have um, a funding formula that is provincial, but it's pretty much the same thing. It incentivizes universities to massify. So you're really hard-pressed to find a university that has 10,000 students or fewer. And when you do, they have not grown at their own peril. And that is hard to watch because you see, you know, the my most loathed phrase, which is bums and seats. I hate that. I hate that phrase. Yeah. But the funding formulas are treating not learners, but students as massified bums and seats. And so these these little four universities are sort of exist despite not because of the conditions of the mm. Canadian post-secondary sector. And they're the ones I love the most because I love a good underdog. I love <laughs> people innovating in in cultures of austerity to a limit. And I think there's an important point here that you know we've got to we've got to start moving towards mindsets of abundance in yeah. higher education, and and that that calls us to do that kind of work. But I I get to build between and amongst these four universities and build in the margins and on the edges, and so. Only in retrospect, and of course, every lesson I learn is only in hindsight, um, that I have spent the last five years doing that and have gotten the closest approximation to building a bricks and mortar Hope University, which has been a concept that has been rattling around in my brain for more than five years. I've been writing towards this concept of what does a university called Hope University look like? How do you create structures and policies and systems for humans to flourish and to build hopeful, future-facing spaces. And 
I've been able to try that out in real time because I get to see how those systems are unfolding in dynamic simultaneity. So I get to see four universities sort of inside them as they change and adapt and collaborate in real time. Mm. And it is just, it's a joy. And then I sit on national and international boards. So I'm a board member of the American Association of Colleges and Universities. I'm the only Canadian. Yeah, that's that's new news. Yes. (gasps) Wow. It is so humbling to think you know a sector. Like I think I know the Canadian sector pretty well and I know the players and I know the rules and I know the systems. Mm. And to go into not just a different country, but it feels like a different universe where some of the things are very similar and others, I think, oh, we're not talking about that. We're talking, we're worried about something else over here. Isn't yes. that interesting? <laughs> I yeah. had that I had that feeling when I attended your pod network session because there are conversations happening in Canada that are not totally dissimilar to conversations happening in the US, particularly around diversity and inclusion. But I found the language you used was often very different than the language I was used to hearing. And so I had to do a lot of kind of translation work to kind of follow along with those conversations. And I imagine you're experiencing that in reverse as you as you network with US higher educators. Yes, I've been surprised about how decolonization is a term that is used or not used depending on different national sectors. So going to the UK and talking about decolonization or going to Norway and talking about decolonization or going to the U S and not hearing a lot about decolonization Mm. is, is very decentering for Canadians because we have had to sit in discomfort that has been ongoing for hundreds of years. It's the foundation of, of our country is, stealing people's land um, and really having to sit in that discomfort since mm-hmm. 2015 when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, Canadians, you think that you are very smug on an international stage and yet look to your own mm-hmm. history for for genocide. And that, I think, has taken Canadians on a threshold journey where we it's a transformative i think it'll be good but we've really had to cross that threshold of what does decolonization and indigenization look like as individuals as institutions particularly social social mission institutions like universities and then as our national identity what do we do with that and how do we sit with the horror of something that has been invisible is now visible and we can't unsee it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you more about the Maple League. Um, First, is it composed of actual superheroes? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've never put that together. That sounds amazing. It just, as soon as I heard of it, I was like, it sounds like it's the Canadian superhero team. (gasps) Oh, I'm Um, borrowing that Derek. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But um, more practically, what are the kinds of things that you can do through a collaboration like this that might be really hard or impossible to do if you were just working with one institution? Oh, the Maple League has been a labor of love for me for the last five years. And we in Canada are not wired for interinstitutional collaborations. I think the US does it much better. You have, you know, the big seven and the Sisters and the Ivies and the, you right. have they're often sports based, right? 
here at the University <laughs> of Mississippi, yes. we are in the Southeastern Conference, right? And it's based on sports, but it has led to other forms of collaboration among the institutions in the conference. Yeah. Which is so fascinating. The Ivies are uh, sports-based. That was an athletic league. And that right? is something yeah. that we as Canadians don't recognize. We think, okay, that's academic. It's prestigious. It is the best of the best. We think about it with those connotations and for better or for worse, right? There's sure. there's all sorts yeah. of things tied up there. But in Canada, we have, because we have provincial funding, um, so the, the federal government funds research and infrastructure, but the provincial governments funds all of the universities directly. There is no incentive. There's, there's some incentives for universities to work together in the provincial, but they're always looking for another pieces of pie, right? They're always scrambling sure. to like, this is a pie that is diminishing. How do we fight for larger pieces? And of course, because it's not federally funded outside of research and infrastructure, there's not a lot of incentive for universities to collaborate across provincial lines. Okay. So the Maple League is the only one of its kind as an academic consortium that is interprovincial. So it's four universities in three provinces. And we got together because we have been, as you said, most Canadian universities are massive. They're really big. UBC has its own fire department. <laughs> it's, I believe that. It's 80,000 80, students. You know, it's it's quite remarkable to see the scope and size with the same funding formula as the rest mm. of us. So there are things you can't do to scale. And one of the founding questions that when I came on as executive director, it had been a great idea, but it was failing to anchor in practice. And so I came on board and said, okay, this can't be an idea from the top down. It can't just be four university presidents thinking that this is a really good idea for branding or recruitment. We need to actually do something. We need to show, not tell. And so what is, what is possible? And so um, we came up with two questions. What can we do together that we cannot do on our own? And how does working together help what we are doing on our own campuses? And if though we ask those questions for every single thing that comes up, any idea, any project, any initiative, any grant, if we can answer both of those questions, amazing. If we can answer one of those questions, perfect. If we can answer zero of those questions, we move on. Because we yeah. have to be, you, there's a lot of things you can do as an individual institution that you do not need to collaborate with. And sometimes it slows you down. Mm. In the case of the Maple League, it has to speed us up or it has to make us um, able to do something we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Mm. So th that's the fundamental founding principle from five years ago. And so what does that look like in, in real life? That looks like, well, COVID, oh. I hate saying that COVID was the best thing that happened to our consortium, but COVID allowed us to do things that we hadn't thought were super important before that have become very, very urgent. So we built a virtual Maple League teaching and learning center. We built uh, professional development. So we had weekly and biweekly sessions called Better Together. So we brought together the expertise of people within our mm -hmm. campuses and our communities to do professional development. So anything from how to use your LMS to how to do a land acknowledgement, what does high impact practices look like? How do you do inclusive design? There's a huge amount of expertise amongst our four campuses. So we brought mm -hmm. those people um, 
up and showcase them. And then we started a Maple League host, so international leaders and experts to come talk to us about a big big things. We see three or four of those a semester. Then we started to realize that, well, wait a second, people want to have more than isolated conversations. They want to actually have a cohort. So we built a book club. So we took a book club um, and we broke them into small groups of eight to 12 people. We chose a, a book and then we had six sessions that were facilitated by by expert facilitators that we helped support and train. And so we have like 80 and 90 people going through a book club every semester. And if you think about that, there's probably only about 600 faculty across our four universities. So having up, up, you know, 90 of them participate in a book club over a longer period of time. And then that's the gateway into more programming. So we built a micro certificate Mm -hmm. in teaching and learning, which is a full year. So it bundles better together, Maple League Coast, the book club and a capstone Mm -hmm. and pulls together a cohort of 15 to go through this and they get a, a certificate at the end. So those things, none of us have the bandwidth to do that on our individual campuses. We're exhausted. We're all based. We don't really have centers. We have committees. We have Senate committees for teaching and learning, but we don't have bricks and mortar centers. And so that was something that was both a um, real detriment in COVID, but it turned out to be a benefit because we could adapt and be super agile. So that was mm. that was one. But we do things like we share Maple Leaf courses across our four universities. We run an indigenous um, education abroad program. So we get indigenous students from our four campuses and take them to Belize to meet with elders from different indigenous communities. And we pay for elders to go with them. And so those are some beautiful examples of people thinking about how to design for collaboration when we're actually really trained Mm. and have to unlearn competition. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I I have a couple of other questions I really want to ask you. Um, I do want to talk about the uh, American Association of Colleges and Universities um, because that is yet a a different landscape and um, community, a larger community um, to be a part of. What made it? What motivated you to pursue that position and and on the board of directors? And and what do you hope to accomplish through that work? I so I didn't pursue it. <laughs> it was okay. a wonderful thing that happened. That was you know I think I, again the stars aligning. So Lynn Pascarella, who was the former president of Mount Holyoke, who is an incredible champion for liberal education and the president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, is a friend of my university president. And we gave her an honorary doctorate many years ago at Bishop's University for her work in liberal education. Okay. And she has come back and given talks. And I met her through through that And my chairship, the Jaroslawski chairship, had just been founded. And what I needed was an advisory council that had external and internal members. And so we thought Lynn Pascarella would be amazing because she has such a, a depth and breadth of understanding. She can put you know, the universities and the social mission really on an international um, map for us and can be an incredible guide as I build this from a Canadian perspective, but really benefiting from an international lens. So she has been my advisor for six or seven years now. And when Santa Ono's term was up and a couple of other Santa Ono was the president of UBC, 
He's, okay. he's just been, um, March 7th, just became the, the president of University of Michigan. Uh, wonderful, visionary uh, leader in higher education. He sat on the the board and he's he sort of stepped off and Lynn and their advisory committee thought it would be nice to have a Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> and Lynn thought of of me uh, with such generosity and and mm. sponsorship and so invited me to sit and mm. what an incredible honor and also what an incredibly important moment of decentering for me thinking that I you know it's the lesson I learned from the universe thinking that I've got a an understanding of a particular paradigm or sector and I understand the rules and how how it all operates and then to sit mm. with it was unbelievable I met a couple board members and I was talking about how I think that the Canadian um, sector is going through a paradigm shift. And, and they were like, yeah, no kidding. We got really frustrated. So we started our own universities. And so <laughs> Adam just started College Unbound and Tim started Rutgers Honors Living Community. And these two amazing, complete hmm. paradigm busting innovators we're standing there talking to me over a glass of wine and my jaw was on the floor. I just thought, I am now in a room with true superheroes who are doing sure. this work of reimagining paradigms to be more inclusive, just, uh, equitable, diverse, yeah. humane. And so I have to tell you that I will just sit as a learner in a space where people are doing beautiful things with a really, really strong equity lens, really mm. complex. Frederick Lawrence sits on it and he has been the president of, of universities. He sits and talks about the academic enterprise and who is responsible for the academic enterprise, who owns it, who is contributing to it. And his ideas completely have shaped my understanding of of who we are as a collegium, as a social institution, and what our social contract is to a broader society. So I just I'm going to sit as a learner and fangirl a lot at this table. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a table. Yeah, it's impressive. It and you know what it, I love, and I think this is true. This is consistent with my experience. Is that superheroes are the most humble and the most generous. Hmm. So if you yeah. are territorial and um, mediocre, you're going to protect that little tiny kingdom and you're not going to be generous and generative in a way when you are an exceptional human. Like Peter Felton, one of my guides and thought partners and and joys is the most generous human. He oh, because is. he's yeah. just exemplary and he models it in every conversation. And, uh, you know, I just think that is where we should all be aspiring to, to get to is to be extraordinarily generous and committed to human flourishing. So my last question, um, I'm, we could talk a long time, but I have an we iron should. clock <laughs> and I'm, I know I'm going to produce a podcast episode, so we have to stop at some point. Um, uh, you seem to get more done than most humans. What are one or two things that you've learned to be helpful when it comes to managing your own time and energy? Because I, I mean, super heroics aside, you are, you are a human being with only so much time and energy. And, that, and I'm wondering what, uh, and I'm thinking of, you know, colleagues at 
teaching centers and in educational development who also feel like there's a lot to do. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on managing uh, time and effort so that you can do a lot, um, but also still be, you know, um, whole and healthy. Well, first of all, thank you. I do not have any extra time in the world. And in fact, I nap pretty regularly. Um, nice. I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, a dog and a cat, and a lovely, hilarious, non-academic husband. So I feel like the only I, – I know when I tap into my purpose. I can feel it. I can mm. feel the energy. I can feel my energy levels um, fill up rather than feel depleted. I know mm-hmm. when I'm closer to my purpose than when I'm away from it because I can I can really gauge that even in an embodied way. And so I think the the one thing that I can say about this is it's all about alignment. So going back to that metaphor of those concentric circles sort of coming yeah. out from that pebble, that the only thing that I have learned in my as a learner <laughs> is that when I align all of the things together that are tied to my purpose, I mm. flourish and I feel great energy. And when I get out of alignment, I know when that happens. So, so for example, a, a little story about this Marvel Cinematic Universe course. I'm teaching it outside of my discipline. I'm a Shakespearean. I have no business in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am not part of the, the fan club. I came to it relatively late in life. Uh, I was struck by the ways in which it creates a universe for us to see ourselves and then take lessons away. I was struck sure. by their the metaphors. I was struck by the importance of origin stories, um, superhero powers, the ways in which they cross thresholds in their own transformative learning journeys, and how they are constantly in tension between agency and communion, right? What, yeah. is, what is just? What is our purpose? How do we make the world better? And so... I started, I use that a lot in my uh, leadership. So I sit on boards of governors and senates and work between and amongst four universities. And I was starting to find myself talking about the struggles and the obstacles and the barriers through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) So I'd be like, okay, Captain Marvel, she's been fighting with one arm tied behind her back because she hasn't figured out that her emotion is a strength, not a weakness. Mm, So how does that look like when we sit at tables where we only talk about the cognitive and not about the affective? And how does that silence, especially, you know, historically excluded groups and people from conversations to bring their their whole selves, whatever, whatever that wholeness means to them. So I started to think, okay, wait a second. I'm going to do this and I'm going to build it in my classroom with my colleague, Dr. Heather Lawford, who is a Canada Research Chair in Youth Generativity. Like she is one of the world's leading experts in young people and generativity. So we thought, okay, let's co-teach this. We've never co-taught before, especially across our disciplines, but why not? So we decided in our in our adventures for alignment that we would create an emerging framework. We would workshop it with students. It would turn into a book. Then we take it to 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 workshop at international conferences and in pre conferences, and then we share it as a book and then bring it back in as a text for future classes that we teach together. So that's alignment in ways that 
I could treat my educational leadership and administration separate from my classroom, separate from my research, separate from my scholarship, and separate from my sort of speaking speaking engagements mm-hmm. and outreach. But instead, they're part of the same thread. And so I do that with Shakespeare. I do that with Marvel. I do that with educational leadership. I do that with storytelling. uh, And I try to understand that each one is part of a larger thread that is connected to my purpose. So it is all about alignment. It's never perfect. It's always a little bit messy. But that is where – and so I nap Often I take weekends and evenings off. I am home when my children are returning home at 3 p.m. I understand and recognize the deep privilege of that life. And I I get to have that life because of my privilege. Let's just say like white, middle class, cis, gendered, you know, I'm I'm sitting in privilege already, but my what I have been able to unlock is the alignment of looking at all of these pieces and trying to understand how they're mutually enriching each other. Thank you, Jessica. This has been really lovely and really uh, generative for me thinking about um, my own work, uh, my own life, how they intersect. Um, uh, Thank you for taking time to share with us today and to give us a little insight into your world and how you're navigating it. This has been really rich. Thank you. Thank you. I love conversation. It is not just, you know, Parker Palmer says conversations themselves, good ones are edifying. And sometimes those good conversations lead to change. And we don't know yet until we have those conversations, what it looks like. But I feel um, so privileged to be able to have those good conversations, which are edifying in and of themselves, Mm -hmm. but may lead to revolutionary change in the future. Thank you.